Slayer. Uh, for our third episode, we are lucky enough to have the founder of Solana, Anatoly Yakovenko. Anatoly uh, came from uh, Qualcomm, where he spent uh, over a decade building out the kernel systems for the flip phones that we all use for many, many years. And Solana is addressing the transaction per second uh, issue that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of the other uh, cryptocurrencies uh, have been trying to address as well too. I think it's super interesting what they're doing over there, Amanda. What do you what what, what do you think? Yeah, I think proof of history is really interesting. So um, that's kind of their new method for being able to handle high transactions, which Anatoly will get into more detail for. But um, the idea of being able to order transactions and tell how long um, it's been since two events occur as kind of a way of validating transactions. It's super interesting, so I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, the transaction per second that they're, that they're talking about, you know, getting to 710,000 transactions per second comparable to, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think it actually, you know, if it's, if it's real and it, it actually is uh, viable, it gives them the opportunity to have real commercial viability out there uh, comparable to some of the other... Um, proofs out there, like uh, proof of stake and proof of work. Yeah, definitely. So I guess that's um, the golden question we ask in crypto is the, the if it's real question. So I know we've both spent a lot of time getting into technology, so let's um, kind of dive into this with Anatoly and see where the rabbit hole leads. A quick word from our sponsor after Amanda gives our usual um, notice of uh, this not being investment advice. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, remember, none of this is investment or legal advice. It should not be construed as such. Do your own research. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. This is David. Hi, this is Amanda. And tonight we have Anatoly Yakovenko from Solana with us. Thank you, Anatoly, for joining. Um, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Anatoly, I think it would be great uh, if you could just give us a little bit more about your general history, um, as well as how you got into crypto and how you started Solana. So I spent most of my career at Qualcomm. Um, if you guys ever had, like, these old CDMA phones, the flip phones, like a Motorola Razor, um, they ran this operating system called Brew uh, that Qualcomm built um, and sold to Verizon, and Verizon kind of rebranded it. Um, 
but there are, I think, at one point, 500 million these devices that were live. And I was a kernel engineer that, that worked on Brew, so kind of worked on just about everything that had to do with the operating system. Um, it was a, a really fun uh, kind of project because we were, at the time, maybe the only true believers that one day you're going to have a handheld computer in your hands <laughs> and you're not even going to think about like your desktop computer. Um, and we hit, we actually hit 2 billion application downloads before there was even an iPhone. Like So, you know, as people kind of think about <laughs> the, the, the mobile handset, right, people think about the iPhone as the main one. We actually built out and made all this stuff work and were very successful um, before smartphones came around. Um, so in like a, what was interesting to me at the time of, while I was working on this is in about a span of six months, after the iPhone came out, um, the market changed from 80% like feature phones uh, to 80% smartphones. <laughs> like an incredibly fast transition of going from uh, kind of like the, the idea that talking on the phone is the most important part to it being a computer in your hand uh, being the most important part. So that was a really kind of interesting experience as an engineer. Um, and, and while I was working on this, you know, Bitcoin actually came out, popped up on my radar. And I looked at it when it was still kind of CPU mining and thought, oh, this will never scale. <laughs> Completely missed the social, you know, impact of it. And same with Ethereum. I thought the the EVM, the virtual runtime that they were using, was never going to be fast enough to actually support anything. Uh, but also missed just the general notion that this thing didn't exist before and now it exists. And the... Uh, that was kind of the spark that that drove a lot of Ethereum adoption. And um, kind of, you know, continue working on operating systems. I ended up in uh, San Francisco working on some distributed OS parts and components. Um, and in 2017, there was this like explosion of ideas in the space. You know, there are people building like tags and like <laughs> crazy ideas like IOTA and uh, you know just about everything under the sun and I started reading papers because um, you know <laughs> it's kind of what I do in my free time uh, kind of really getting into the um, the things that people are trying and it kind of started you know my, my brain started going and I was thinking about the how like we actually scale wireless networks um, how we you know, efficiently use spectrum. Um, all these things are based around um, dividing that resource, um, and a lot of times dividing it using time, like like TDMA, time division, multiple access is kind of like the first modern, like global wireless protocol that came to existence. Existence. So one day I had too much coffee. I'm kind of this idea of cryptographically encoding passage of time as data kind of <laughs> came about. And uh, that was it. That was the start of Solana. I love how we started with more Motorola razors, which is just funny for me because that was my first cell phone was a pink Motorola razor, um, and I was very proud of having it to you know proof of history and the development of um, decentralized infrastructure. It's kind of you know it, it seems like those things mentally when we reflect on history are so far apart, but um, it's, it's really not that much time that's passed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, wireless networks are like the largest network we have actually and like very adversarial. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, there's comp 
companies that are paid for, uh, you know, like public companies that build software and hardware to try to break into them. <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a fun uh, fun environment to work in, and like in any part of it. I mean, back in those days, it was you had to cram a lot of functionality into something pretty small, and you also, you know, today, you know, if I need a new iOS update, my iPhone automatically tells me that. And packets of information and data immediately kind of float, come floating into my into my into my room into my phone. How did it work back then? I imagine having to do updates. Um, were uh, well, you could do updates actually. Like <laughs> you know the but um, we like build the operating system to run on like the sixteen meg uh, sixteen bit. Um, very low power ARM chips that could that were running at like 200 megahertz, um, but that same OS also worked on these like eight core like 64 bit processors that came out later. Um, so we were very resource efficient about how everything how the software was built. What's interesting is right is blockchain like especially Ethereum is this idea of a, a single computer that is replicated around the world. So I started, you know, as soon as I kind of looked at this, you know, and seriously started designing the software, all my embedded systems experience kind of, you know, came up like, hey, we're, we actually have a very hardware constrained resource. Um, we need to make use of every, every bit of silicon we can, you know, and, and be very price conscious about how this stuff uh, blows up. So that, that is really, you know, we have a, we have a, in our project, we have a cool innovation around how to make consensus more efficient. But the real innovation is like what I call blood, sweat, and tears engineering. It's really optimizing over the, like the final bits and bytes and aligning like all the memory accesses, making sure that the software is not doing things that um, make things slow. It's it's very hard. <laughs> it's, it's, by hard, I mean it's like very very time consuming to do all this analysis and like really drill down to see where things are inefficient. So maybe you can talk to us just how did, so you, you brought it up briefly, but how did this notion of proof of history come about? Where did it, you know, where did that, you know, we've, we've seen proof of work, we've seen proof of stake, um, you know, so, we've seen DPoS, but where did proof of history kind of come about? How did you come across that? So, um, Kind of the name came out of the, the notion that, um, so, you know, the idea of like introducing time um, into this distributed permissionless network, that was really kind of what, what started me down this path. And the reason why you want time is um, kind of intuitively imagine I'm sending messages to many different people and these messages arrive out of order. And if they could trust the, the timestamp, like the clock in that message, um, everybody could order them exactly the same way and they could come to the same conclusion about what these messages are, are telling them. And they could do this without talking to each other. So that's really the core optimization. Like what makes things fast is when we can use time as a, as kind of a, a global reference point in the system. Um, so adding a source of time was really what I was trying to do. And, there's different approaches, and all of them, I think, up until this uh, proof of history, required a, a, a certain 
level of trust in the source of time. Like you could trust, you know, atomic clocks, you could trust GPS, you could trust, um, you know, cryptographically signed, you know, timekeeping services. Google actually built these atomic clocks that they run in their data centers that their engineers synchronize and they use that source as their source of time. But none of this stuff really works in the network that, um, like blockchain, like a distributed, decentralized, permissionless network where, you know, you kind of treat everybody else in the network as a, as a potential threat. So eventually I just kind of was thinking about how Bitcoin works and how it's a, it's a way to mine, um, like a way to, to prove that um, you have a certain amount of resource by solving this puzzle. And what we're really proving is I have like access to this much computational power and this much, this much electricity to run it. And those are very physical, physically based. They're, they're really grounded in physics. You can't really cheat them. Um, and the only other resource I could think of, again, was time. And I started thinking about, you know, how do you mine? <laughs> how can you mine time? Well, it turns out you can use the same technique that proof of work uses, but... Um, do it in a way that cannot be parallelized. So there's no way for you to take this computation and make it run faster by using uh, more computers. So given that, you start generating this data structure that can only be done by a single machine, single thread, single core um, at a time. And this data structure becomes a water clock. Um, and as this data structure grows, you know, your water level rises, and that's your uh, point of reference in the network is the size of the data structure. I think that's really important because there's a difference there between, you know, proof of work, which is you want a lot of compute power, you want to have the cheapest energy. With proof of stake, also, it's about the nodes, and it sounds like there's actually, you sort of plateau with proof of history if you get to X percentage of nodes out there, it actually starts to not have an incremental value. Is that correct? Um, well, so there's two kind of things with, uh, with node count. Is nodes, nodes kind of give you this decentralization aspect that if the parts of the network disappears, that because you're so decentralized, you have so many computers in the network, that... Um, out around those problems, you know, like the system keeps going even though part of the network is gone. Um, so for us, what doesn't degrade uh, is how fast the network synchronizes the data, doesn't degrade um, linearly with the size of the network. So we actually going to, to our, it's not a deficiency for history, it's actually like a, a feature, right? Uh, because of our data structure, um, itself encodes time and events. And those events have now kind of this cryptographic proof of when they occurred. Nodes in the network can download the structure um, from anyone, regardless of uh, where it came from. You can literally, you know, send somebody a hard drive with a proof history ledger. Um, and given the data structure, you can... Um, go back and look at it and examine it and see the, the time and order of events when they occurred in that structure. And without actually talking to those nodes directly, you can compute the state of the network. So, you know, 
kind of like in that messages example, I sent out a bunch of messages. Well, instead of receiving them directly from me, somebody gives you like a box full of letters. <laughs> and um, in those letters, without actually knowing that they, I wrote them or they came from me, you can actually rebuild the order of all the events. Um, and that ordering will be exactly the same as everyone else's. So that gives us the ability to scale the network in the in no count, um, kind of like BitTorrent. You guys are familiar with this technology. It's uh, Bram Cohen uh, invented this way of to quickly download data between many nodes by sharing the bandwidth between them. Um, so we have we use a very similar technique um, because none of the nodes really care where this data is coming from because they're they're not relying on the, any. Um, any direct communication to mean anything significant. I'll, I'll definitely plead the fifth on whether or not I know about uh, BitTorrent from my college days, but um, I, I want to focus it on something you said that um, anybody, it's like receiving a box of letters and being able to rebuild when those events occur. But I think something that would be really helpful for our readers to understand is, is what is determining the when event an event occurred? Um, is okay. it every so, provides a time and it kind of sinks. Like, how does it work? Oh, so this data structure, uh, proof of history, it's it's uh, this cryptographic hash function called SHA-256. It's the same hash function that um, Bitcoin miners use uh, to to solve their kind of the puzzle, the proof of work puzzle. So for us, the difference is that instead of looking for a specific value generated by this function. Um, we are looping it. So we're taking its output and using it as the next input and running this thing as fast as we can. So because it's a cryptographic hash function, um, what that means is that you can't predict the output from the input. You actually have to run it to see what it is. And if you're looping this and you're running this, you know, 3 million times a second, um, and you sample the structure, like you sample this process and record the counter and the, the state, these samples are bits of data that represent time passing because the only way to generate them is by actually doing this process, by spending time to do it. Um, so how you actually get a source of time out of this is you take these samples and you use them in a message that you're sending. And what you're doing when you're sending this message is actually taking whatever messages you receive and hashing them into this process. So now um, that, that, that step of taking the messages and hashing them into this running thread modifies all the subsequent um, data that it's generating in an unpredictable, cryptographically unpredictable way. So that modification is what guarantees that that message was created before that and the, its own reference to the structure creates I guarantee that it was generated sometime after. So kind of very high level way you can think of it is I have a, you know, a newspaper like New York Times with a, with a date on it and I take a picture of myself with it, right? That kind of guarantees that I was alive after that newspaper was published. Um, but then I send this picture to the New York Times and they publish that. <laughs> right? So that guarantees that um, that picture was taken before uh, that second newspaper newspaper was published. Does that, does that make sense? 
So now yeah. you kind of have, you, now you have this like upper and lower bound of when events occurred. And that's, that's how you build a, a source of time. So it's not like, oh, okay, something occurred at exactly 12.01 p.m. today in four seconds. It's kind of relative time within the network. You can say, you know, from, from the moment the network, um, from the moment of network inception, um, all of these events occurred, and they occurred in this order, and you can space apart how yep. long it's been between events based on the count. Exactly. So you can kind of guess that, you know, modern CPUs generate about 3 million of these per second, so, you know, we can say that these events occurred, you know, some, you know, like 10 seconds apart. And for us, we don't really care how accurate that is. Um, the network kind of adjusts this number running. What's important is that everybody that is participating interprets that data the same way. Um, and that is fairly easy for us to say because we can simply encode in the, in the ledger itself that says that at this you know, when you're interpreting this data now, the network considers, you know, 3 million hashes to be one second. But maybe, you know, a year from now, it may be 6 million hashes. Is this kind of relative to, you know, I, I, I try to make it simple for people out there. When I talk about, like, plasma, you know, plasma, in my opinion, is a, is a set of rules or a standardization to basically make things happen faster. Uh, is that kind of the same principle? Um... I mean, on like a very high level, um, we have a, a, a set of rules to interpret this source of time. Um, and then that we can update those rules as hardware, you know, new hardware gets shipped, right? You know, AMD creates a new CPU, so that might run slightly faster. So when those things happen as nodes and that network get upgraded, we can continuously kind of keep track of that and what the right amount of hashes is to mean a second. But even even without that, it's not really sensitive to to uh, to errors because all the events that are occurring on the network occur um, relative to the to the actual counters. So we don't really you know, in our code like when we <laughs> when we're building this, we're not really worried about seconds. What we're worried about is does this message arrive within, you know, X amount of counters? That kind of thing. I, I think for yeah. listeners, what also might be helpful, and I'm going to let Amanda ask a few questions, but what's the implications here in terms of commercial use? You know, it, a lot of the projects that have been out there over the last year or two have been more academic projects that haven't necessarily gotten to scale. You know, there's been, you know, IBM, there's been a few others out there that have been been able to try to get some commercial entities to use this. What are the implications for commercial use of something that's able to get such a higher through, uh, throughput for transactions per second? Um, so, so practically speaking, for me, um, throughput actually is means price, right? Like, um, if you think about it, you know, a business that's running on chain that's using these transactions for like, you know, payments or something like that, they're sensitive to a, a spike in price, <laughs> spike in price and fees like in Ethereum or Bitcoin. If, if fees all of a sudden go to three to six dollars, it's no longer like feasible to buy a coffee with it, right? <laughs> um, so if you really want to build a business around, you know, cryptocurrencies, you need to have a certain price guarantee. 
And if your capacity of your network is very low, you know, um, 2,000 transactions per second, it doesn't take a lot many transactions for somebody to uh, start filling it up to the point where price increases and your business will suffer, right? You can no longer like service, you know, serve those functions. So I think without a high throughput chain, we really won't see decentralized businesses grow and, and like actually function. What you will see is maybe things like Hyperledger where you have private networks that are really using this as a, a database. They could might as well be using Cassandra on <laughs> AWS. That's a good point. I think the, um, the power of the power of decentralized networks is the fact that there isn't like this trusted set of people or trusted, you know, group that's coordinating things, that it is actually open and free to everyone. Like even in even in like the very simple applications, like um, you know, a smart light bulb. Like if you're if you buy this a smart light bulb today, it depends on some like some company to maintain and run servers to keep updating it. If that company ever goes away, your light bulb light bulbs become useless. But if that was a you know a smart contract in Ethereum and all this stuff was coordinated through a decentralized app, that actually gives you persistence that can function beyond the life of the company that created or their whims to run the software. And I think those products will actually work like intended, right? So I think we've gone through, uh, you know, quite a few benefits of um, proof of history, but I think it would be interesting to talk about uh, a potential trade-off since every system tends to compromise on a few things. So um, is it possible for the network to be compromised by bad actors in the system? You know, for example, could nodes coordinate an attack to try to reorder transactions? Um, so we are... Um, just like Bitcoin, we use a, a form of uh, kind of Nakamoto consensus, uh, but it's based around commitment and time, time meaning number of hashes to a particular fork. So reorder is possible, but it, it, you can't do it with uh, more computational power. <laughs> you actually have to uh, block the network for X amount of time such that their commitment expire and then they have free choice to uh, to reorganize and those commitments grow exponentially as more commitments become available so um, just kind of like Bitcoin as transactions get very deeper and deeper the ability to reorder them um, get becomes harder and harder and less likely and harder in terms of time that literally the network would have to kind of stop for a day to reorder something that was, you know, many, uh, many confirmations deep. So this allows us to, uh, to function in case of uh, catastrophic events, you know, like Yellowstone blows up, <laughs> the system can, can actually continue running. But in the practical sense, it means that um, reorder becomes very difficult to happen with it as soon as the transactions are buried by like, you know, 30, 30 to 60 seconds of uh, confirmation. 
If you could, Anatoly, talk to us about how uh, the kind of the incentive model or how you actually get people to be on the network and, uh, you know, be a node on the system to be able to, you know, assist with the proof of history. Um, so proof of history is not a consensus mechanism, right? It's just their way of, of keeping track of time in the network. You still have proof of stake that is used for voting. So to kind of like maybe cover some of the, the previous question, the, the weaknesses in the network are similar to any proof-of-stake network where if you acquire enough tokens, you can kind of influence the network. You can start, you know, doing a denial of service or something like that. Um, but um, just like every other proof-of-stake network, there is a, a reward for being a validator, which means running the code and processing transactions and then committing your stake as a you know, economic commitment to not reorder. Um, so, so those rewards are based on a, kind of a, a staking return. We haven't like fully locked down the actual, you know, direct like exact numbers in this, um, but they're likely to be based on how much has been staked in the network and you know the number of participants because we want to encourage um, growth. We, we actually want a large part of the network to be staked and for us to support many different nodes um, to increase decentralization. Um, so you mentioned that you guys are still working on the exact specifics of proof of stake. So maybe could you tell us a little bit more about the development stage of the project? I, I know the original white paper, I believe, had Q1 as a launch, but um, if there's anything we've learned in crypto... That, yeah. you know, has <laughs> timelines. So, it's a little bit difficult to give timelines to developers because you don't know when something is going to go wrong and, until something needs to be fixed. <laughs> yep. Um, so we've been pretty good about hitting our timelines. Like the first line of code was in February. By June, we had a multi-node testnet up. Um, so right now, we're, our, our work is around essentially making it uh, Byzantine fault tolerant, um, which means dealing with all the fun stuff of rollback, uh, like rotation, consensus, um, while maintaining performance, <laughs> um, which is hard <laughs> because every change we make does have a, you know, impact on performance. Right now, our testnet on the Google Cloud deployment um, on their kind of 800 megabit network can it hit about 200,000 transactions steady state uh, per second. And uh, the, we actually have uh, an SDK um, for building programs locally and, you know, submitting them to the network to execute. And you can write kind of simple applications. We have a, a simple tic-tac-toe app that you can use as a basis. Um, and, you know, when you run it on our chain, it feels like uh, it's not running on a blockchain, which is, I think, <laughs> exactly the goal is to, is to get these systems working fast enough to where you don't really think about them anymore. Um, and our target for mainnet, at least on the engineering side, is still Q1. Um, seems like we're more or less getting there. Whether, uh, I think that there's still kind of larger questions to be answered, and especially being a U.S. project, that things are tricky uh, in, the legal, in the legal side of launching a new of new chains, so we'll see how that works out. But um, we feel like we will be able to actually launch sometime in 2019. 
I would say it seems like more regulatory guidance on ICOs is um, tentatively slated in Q1 from um, what we've been hearing on our side as well. So hopefully that regulation coincides with more yeah. guidance on what it looks like when you launch a network. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my wish for, you know, Christmas wish is to get, like, some some regulatory guidance out of, our, uh, out of the SEC and the other the other regu- regulatory parties involved in the space to see what is actually okay and what is not. Um, so far, like, from what we can tell, um, they've really gone out at of, out of folks that have been, you know, kind of obvious bad actors for the most part. So. How would Solana kind of fit with other other kind of systems, other protocols? Um, you know, I, I talk, we talk a lot about interoperability um, as, you know, the idea, you know, down the road in 2019 and 2020, 2021 is there'll be a large, you know, company like an Amazon or a Google uh, that has multiple different facets, but, you know, hopefully, you know, decentralized and leveraging, you know, crypto, uh, crypto technology. Um, cryptographic technology. So how does Solana fit with other, or can it fit with other uh, systems right now? What do you envision that in the future? Um, so my, my view is that um, like we're, you know, kind of in the early days of operating systems, there were tons and tons of OSs, but eventually a few dominant ones emerged. And I think we'll see something similar here because there's really two two ways that you can optimize these networks. One is privacy, and the other one is performance. Like I think there's real trade-offs there for both. If you're trying to build like a fully shielded uh, privacy-first network like Monero, I think you will have to sacrifice both performance and programmability. That achieving kind of this simple-to-program environments are very, very difficult there. Um, we're kind of taking the other bet is that we can build um, the most performance, oper- the most performance, you know, global operating system we can because, you know, for us the goal is to go from complete lack of privacy in the internet to going to the phenomenal privacy of a blockchain, which is <laughs> the 99.9% of privacy like improvement. You know, when you think about, um, you know, Bitcoin has allowed us to be custodians of our wealth, right? Like, you don't have to store money in a bank. You can actually, you know, self-generate a key pair. You can be custodian of that key pair. That means that you, the money is with you. Um, like, Google and Facebook right now are de facto custodians of our identities, right? So they kind of know everything about you. Everything you interact with on the Internet requires you to kind of log in with Google, log in with Facebook, um, and in a lot of ways, blockchain can actually solve those functions. But to do that on a global scale, like you actually need a lot of throughput. Um, so we can achieve, I think, a lot of the promise of blockchain by by optimizing on this performance route. Um, but that also means that uh, a chain like Monero, I think, will be more more effective at shielding you for a very simple application, like transferring money around. So that's my yeah, view. Like- <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess I'm counter to this uh, 
collaborative, everybody will win model. I think reality is that um, things will be will work well for certain use cases and like really two 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 things you can optimize, right? And the things that work that need that really need the level of Monero privacy will work, will work only work there, but the things that need global scale will really only work on Solana. <laughs> I think that's something we've noticed in general. Um, I mean, not just in crypto markets, but in kind of broad spectrum human behavior is the trade-off between privacy and convenience. And I guess convenience can be used as, um, you know, a substitute for transaction speed and scalability here. Um, you know, people tend to care a lot less about privacy than I think people originally thought. You know, we're, we're in like a post-Cambridge Analytica um, kind of hack-driven world where people's data is being taken apart. And it seems that, um, you know, only us people in, in crypto with our tinfoil hats potentially care more about that. And, and given that people are willing to compromise on privacy, you know, in return for true scalability um, and speed with, you know, some privacy components, it means that, you know, mo models like Solana uh, tend to emerge as something that people are more willing to focus on than you know, like I said, us people and if, with our Kindle hats in the corner sending all of our money to the Monero network because we don't want anybody to know. You know, I don't want anybody yeah. to know that I just bought five dog sweaters on Amazon. Like, nobody needs to right. know that it's my dog. And, and the, I mean, the level of privacy that we achieve is to the level of, like, Ethereum and Bitcoin. And, you know, we can potentially enhance that too. But the um, for us to focus on performance means that we can actually give that level of privacy for you to, you know, use your, you know, smart thermostat. Like, it doesn't need to know your Google identity, right? <laughs> you can actually use this uh, anonymous mechanism to activate it. Um, and I think um, while it seems like people don't care about privacy, I think they actually do, uh, given the option, um, especially engineers that build these devices, would rather not be custodians of your data if they if they don't have to be. You know, Google might want to, but their competitors might not want to because of the, the liability of, of losing it, you know, of being hacked. Um, so I think there is actually like once once the options are there, once you can actually buy things that are a Google or Facebook login, people will do that because they don't want to share the stuff with Google and Facebook, right? Like naturally, kind of like. Why does Google need to know my the temperature in my house, right? <laughs> I, I think it's you're hitting on something. I know we're getting a little bit away, but I, I, I put out a, a tweet today, you know, talking about there was this note from USV talking about infrastructure and about this kind of false narrative that we need to have, you know, rapid increases in infrastructure. And they talked about how apps come out first or they've come out historically and it drives the infrastructure because it drives the demand. You know, you have the user base who are demanding that this app work better. But I think that, you know, kind of what Amanda was talking about, what you've been talking about now is that I think in this day and age, after we've had phones, you were obviously building a lot of those phones for us for that the last, you know, 15 plus years. I think now that we've become more accustomed to having, you know, supercomputers in our pockets, that we're really not acceptant of slow and hard to use applications anymore. It has to be fast and it has to be frictionless. So how does, you know, 
do we need this well, rapid increase in infrastructure to be able to really see crypto I, grow? I mean, like, I, I just call total BS on that argument because the, the whole infrastructure for the iPhone is actually built by me <laughs> and, like, my team at Qualcomm. Like, we build out these, like, wireless networks to support data. Right? We effectively built out the prototypes for these phones um, and got them, you know, got a very large wide adoption of them to the point where there was half a billion people using them. And the first initial iPhone, if you guys remember, didn't do anything, just said browsing. So it wasn't like there was a killer app on Brew that everybody demanded needed to be faster. Um, it was just that Apple saw the, the fact that they could take their you know, expertise as a device manufacturer with awesome design and integration and leverage all of the existing infrastructure. And that actually happened, you know, like before there was a killer application, before there was an Uber Lyft, you know, or or whatever, you know, whatever you think the killer app is for the phone. Um, so to me, like, I think we have like, you know, when, when the space kind of came about, there was this explosion of like, what if, like we could do like everything on chain um, of ideas, but <laughs> none of them... Uh, None of them were actually feasible because as soon as you try to do anything remotely complex with Bitcoin or Ethereum, you kind of like instantly, you know, hit the wall, like a computational wall and performance wall. Like nobody really wants to deal with a, with a website that takes, you know, an hour to confirm something or 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so for us, like I see... I see that the, the people that want to make this space um, a success and want to build on top of it, they're already working on, on applications. They're already building everything. Uh, we just actually need to give them the tools to succeed. And, you know, if they deploy an Ethereum and it's, they hit success and it's too slow, um, they'll easily switch to Solana because that, you know, going from one to the other, that's just work, you know, that's just coding. Like, it's like going from iOS to Android and in a lot of ways a lot simpler because the code that's running on chain is really the minimal code. I think, I think that's really interesting. And I mean, as the infrastructure in the space, you know, grows and iterates, um, I, I tend to agree, agree with you, Anatoly, kind of the, the way things will build on each other will probably continue along that same line. Um, one slightly controversial thing that we'd like to get into, I think that there's been a, a, a big issue and a big narrative recently around crypto projects having issues with capital and liquidity management. Um, I think we also recently that the, the biggest developers for Ethereum Classic have shut down due to a lack of funding. Um, so what are kind of Solana's views on um, capital and liquidity management? Um, and, and how are you kind of planning for project longevity through the bear market? Um, we got lucky, I think, uh, maybe because we're, the project started kind of late, uh, after the peak, you know, by, by February and like April, as, as we got going with the fundraising, it was clear that I think we hit the peak and it was, <laughs> we, we, you know, we had no clue where things would land. So we basically sold things as soon as we could. Um, so for us, we're well funded to like achieve all our goals. And a lot of that actually came as advice from uh, Vinny Lingram from Civic. He was very adamant that <laughs> we do the, the right thing. 
what I was going to ask is that, you know, you're, you're building in this space right now. Obviously, we've hit this winter, and it's my opinion. I, I've shared it with Amanda, and I've shared it with others that we're going to hit a purge where a lot of these projects were raising as utilities and they're actually securities and effectively, you know, they raised in Ethereum and as Amanda pointed out, their treasury management skills were not necessarily on point and they might have raised 30 or $35 million in Ethereum and they didn't DCA, they didn't, uh, you know, move to fiat and, you know, now they're sitting on, you know, $2 million or less than that, and they can't really support their infrastructure. And so, you know, I'm not asking you for a crystal ball, and this is not really what you do, but, you know, someone who's building in this space, what do you think is going to happen in 19? Do you think we're going to see a lot of these projects just go away? Um, I think so. I think the project did manage their funds should be probably looking at like the best teams and acquiring them. I think that'll happen, you know. Um, we'll see, like, I mean, the sad thing is there's probably a lot of really good teams that, with great ideas that are now uh, experts in, <laughs> in managing like a high, highly volatile security, right? And they didn't do it. So I think that's kind of like the, the sad downside of that. Um, but the companies that did do this well, I think, should actually be looking, you know, which where, what is the best tech we can pick up and what, is, what are the best teams. Um, I was in college during the dot-com crash, um, working in computer science. <laughs> actually, we had a startup with, with my, co uh, my co-founder, Greg, the CTO at the time in college. Um, that was interesting to see the dot-com crash, but um, by the end of... You know, by 2003, it was clear that um, the internet was here to stay and really good companies were being built <laughs> um, and growing. So like Amazon, Google, and a year later, Facebook just took off. So I think out of this chaos, actually, we'll see some really great, you know, technologies emerge. Hey, man, I agree with that. <laughs> Uh, Amanda, do you have any more questions as we're wrapping up with Anatoly? Uh, I don't think so. Um, it was really great to have you on. I think that, you know, proof of history um, is something that's um, potentially hard to digest when you're reading a white paper as a non-technical person like myself. But I think that um, we've done a good dive in and hopefully our, our listeners out there, especially the ones that are starting to dive into this technology now have a, a better understanding of some of the uh, more scalable uses of this technology. Cool. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Uh, great, great talking to both of you guys. And just for, you know, for our listeners, you know, where can they find out more information about what you're doing? Um, you know, can they actually, you know, play around with anything? Are there any videos? Where, where can you point them to some, uh, some good information about Solana? So if you guys go to Solana.com, um, actually links to our telegrams or GitHub. Um, you can go download the code. You can run your own testnet. You can verify our, our everything is open source, Apache 2.0. So you can replicate our numbers on your own, you know, deployment. You can upload programs if you want to our, to our testnet. Um, so feel free to, to go and play around. Um, if you manage to crash the network, uh, submit a PR, we'll send you a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Anatoly, this has really been great. We, you know, Amanda and I thank you a lot. And uh, again, for our listeners, they'll be able to go to Solana.com. And Anatoly, good luck, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Cool. Thank you so much. Take care.